Let's begin the word in Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. And uh, we know it's talking about Jesus and his sacrifice because it's quoted in the New Testament. And it's a powerful chapter of our redemption. And verse 3 says, he, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. And if you have a cross-reference, it'll probably tell you sickness, like in uh, my Bible. And then it says, And he carried our sorrows, our pains. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now, I have some people here in the studio today, so you may hear an amen here and there. Uh, I want you to concentrate on what the Word of God is telling you. It's talking about what Jesus did for us. And, you know, we could say a lot of these things, a lot of things here because it talks about our redemption and our uh, deliverance from sin, from sickness, from pain. It talks about in verse 5, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, which means that whatever was against your peace, Jesus bore it. Whatever was against your wholeness, Jesus took that. That's what the word peace means. Now, you got to get out of your mind when you study the Bible, when you see the word peace, you have to get out of your mind that it's talking about tranquility. Like in the, you know, Far Eastern religions, different kind of ideologies. It's not talking about tranquility as such. That's not really what it's talking about at all. The word peace in Hebrew is the word shalom. And shalom in Hebrew means health and it means deliverance. It means wholeness. It means even prosperity. It means to be well. Or to fare well. It's a powerful word. Every time that you see that word, it's talking about the fullness of the salvation of God provided through Jesus. And if you could ever understand that word in that way, it'll change your life just by reading that word from the New Testament. You remember Jesus said, My peace I leave with you. <laughs> My shalom. My wholeness, you know, he was never sick. My deliverance, my blessing, my health, I leave with you. Not like the world gives. See, because the world has a pseudo peace, has a peace that passes away, has a temporary peace, has a temporary, could we say, form of tranquility that sometimes is available by being in a pretty place and you're looking at a nice view and it's tranquil and you have peace. That's the world's peace. The kind of peace God offers is consistent, continual. It doesn't change. It is always available. And here it says that Jesus took the chastisement of our peace. He took whatever was against your wholeness, Jesus bore it. Whatever was against your deliverance, Jesus took it. If you'll go back here in Isaiah chapter 52 and look at verse 7. 
I've, I've talked about this before, but that's okay. It bears repeating. The Word of God is, is forever. It goes on revealing and showing us things. And in verse 7 of Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Some of the older translations will say gospel. How beautiful are, I'm using the New King James Version. And uh, if you're wondering what, what translation I'm using, uh, I'm not using the older King James. I got tired of all the these and thous and durst. And, uh, <laughs> and also, you know, some of the, uh, other words like, uh, I'll never forget the first time I, I heard a man, a man of God talk about this years and years ago. He said that he was so ignorant of the Bible that the first time that he saw in the scripture, in the book of James, where it said, you know, uh, diverse temptations, it really confused him because he was a scuba diver. And he said, divers, temptations, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> no, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with scuba diving, skin diving, or any of that. It's, it's talking about different temptations or trials and testing. In order to uh, eliminate all of that, I'd just rather read a newer version. Basically, that way you can get what it's talking about and we don't have to explain so much. But anyhow, here, where it says good news, a lot of the older versions does say gospel, do say gospel, and it says, who proclaims wholeness. Now, this is important because the good news of the gospel will proclaim this kind of peace. Wholeness, shalom, one possible way of saying it is nothing missing and nothing broken, where everything is whole and complete and healthy. And well, that's what that word means. And that's included in the good news. So Jesus did all that for us. Now the question always comes up, why did he have to do all that for us? Why did he have to suffer our pains? Why did Jesus have to come and bear the sin of the world? Why did he have to do that? It's an amazing thing when you begin to study this. I just might preach from Genesis to Revelation. But... In order to get a grip on why Jesus came and why he had to do what he did, you have to start at the beginning. When God created the first man in the world, created the first couple in the world, which, by the way, was a man and a woman. His name was Adam and her name was Eve. Uh, it wasn't Adam and Michael. I'm sorry to tell you that doesn't work. Okay, God created them male and female at the beginning, and he put them together. And that's what the scripture talks about. Now, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, it says that God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. Now, some people think that when God created the original man, that basically he made him a gardener and a caretaker of animals. And you hear people talk about that all the time, as though that's all that God did. Listen, here it says that God created the first man in his image and in his likeness, or in other words, like God, in that kind of image. And it says here, that God gave them dominion. And somebody said, yeah, but it was just dominion over the fish, just dominion over the birds of the air. It was just dominion over the cattle. See, that's all man had uh, dominion over and authority over. 
No, it says, the very next line says, over all the earth. God gave man dominion, not only over the animals, but over all the earth. And it says, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God even gave us dominion over the creeps. Praise God. <laughs> you know, every woman on the planet should be happy about that. God gave man dominion over the creeps. And you know, there's a lot of creepy people around. I know, I know. But God gave us dominion over even the things that creep upon the earth. <laughs> Hallelujah. Just a little bit of humor. Loosen some tension. But anyhow, th th this is really talking about, you know, creeping things, you know, little bugs and stuff like that that creep around. <laughs> but I just thought I'd throw that in there. Amen. That should be good news to a lot of ladies. Amen. Okay, verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Verse 28, this is Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue what? That word subdue means to have dominion, to have authority over, to rule, to... Make it your domain. What? What's he talking about? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue what? Subdue the earth. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And that's the way God created the first human being. He gave him authority. He created him in his image and in his likeness and gave him dominion and authority, not just over animals, but over everything. God put it in the hands of Adam and Eve. Now, if you'll hold your place there, because I am going to come back there and, and look at Psalms chapter 8, verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. Man, you could almost preach a sermon just right there. The whole heavens are just the work of God's fingers. Do you imagine what he could do with his hands? Ooh, Lord. I mean, do you imagine what he could do with the rest of himself? <laughs> if just with his fingers he made the heavens. But not just that, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Glory to God. And then here's the question. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him? For you had made him a little lower than, what does your translation say? A little lower than what? That's verse uh, 5. Okay. Most translations, not all of the translations, but, but, but most of the translations will say that man was made a little lower than the angels. But you know that in, in Hebrew, that is not the word for angels. The word for angels is melachim in Hebrew. And here it is the word Elohim, which is the same word that's used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim, God created the heavens and the earth. So man, literally it says, was made a shade lower than God. And he was given authority over all the works of God's hands, over all the earth. It was a far-reaching authority. And then God did something extraordinary. He built a garden that was an amazing place. It was huge. Thousands of square miles. I wish I had time to show you. But it was a huge place. It was lush. It was beautiful. Gold wasn't hidden in the ground. It says that there was gold up above. And you could see it. It was a beautiful place where God put them. 
the only thing that God told Adam and Eve after he created him. Now, you know the story. I mean, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail here. You can go read it in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, how God forms man out of the dust of the ground and then breathes into him the breath of life. And then Adam names all the animals, and and uh, there's not found for him somebody suitable for him. So God puts him to sleep, pulls out. It says one of his ribs, and from that created the woman. Now, you have to understand, these two first human beings were perfect in every sense of the word. I mean, there wasn't a blemish on them. They were beyond perfection. If you could see Adam and Eve, which you couldn't, and this is something that a lot of people don't understand. You know, it talks about in the scripture that where God is concerned, it says that God is is his glory and his light is so extraordinary that when when God showed up in the book of of Ezekiel and showed himself to Ezekiel Ezekiel said he had a fire from the waist down and from the waist up he was like a fire just just covered in light the book of Psalms says he's covered in this glory and in this light man was created in the same exact image and likeness that's why they couldn't see their bodies They couldn't see their bodies because they were covered in the light of God. They didn't know they were naked. They had no idea of that. Actually, Adam and Eve had never even seen their bodies. Not like you and I see it. What they had seen in each other was the glory and the fire of God and the beauty of the holiness of God. That's all they could see. And God creates this wonderful creature called woman. And brings her to this man, Adam, and he says, now she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And so a man will leave his wife and uh, I mean, will leave his family and, and become one with his wife. That was the beginning of the human family. God gave them one commandment. This is one of the most extraordinary things. God didn't give them a whole truckload of commandments. He just told them one thing. He said, Out of every tree of the garden you can eat. Now you can go back and study it and you'll see there were two trees in the midst of the garden. There was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both trees were right smack in the middle of the garden. And God said, now you can eat of all the trees. But this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't touch it. Now, that's what people think he said, but he didn't say that. He didn't say you can't touch it. He said you can't eat of it. I'm going to show you something very interesting that will open your eyes to what was going on there in the garden and what happened with Adam and Eve. Now, you need to understand this in order to understand why Jesus came. Because Jesus didn't come on a whim or because God had some lofty idea that he wanted to do something Without a reason, there was a purpose and a reason for Jesus coming. And there was a reason why he had to come like he came. And in order to understand why he came and why he did what he what he did, you have to understand what happened in the book of Genesis. And God said, don't eat of that tree. Why? Did you notice that God called it the tree of the knowledge or of the intimacy. I wish I had time to teach you this. But that word knowledge means to know like a man knows his wife. Intimate. Communion with good and evil. Now, I'll explain this to you. 
in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you'll study the Bible, you'll find in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Jeremiah, that it says that God, when he creates, he creates things perfect, flawless. You know, God is no slouch. God is not sloppy. He doesn't create things in a chaos. He always creates things good. Yet, by verse 2, we say, we see that it says, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and it say, and it talks about their Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. Look what it says. The earth, verse 2, was without form and void. And specifically, it tells us in the book of Isaiah that God creates nothing without form or void. The phrase here is tohu va bohu. And it means chaotic disorder. God creates nothing like that. But something happened between verse 1 and 2 after God created something perfect that caused a complete and total disorder. And many students of the Bible and many scholars, others don't believe it, but I find plenty of evidence in the scripture, especially in the book of Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14, where it talks about when Lucifer, through his pride, decided to rebel against God, decided that he was bigger than God, and that he was going to exalt himself above the throne of God, that he was going to be like God. That's very interesting, because, see, Lucifer was an angelic being created by God. No angelic being has ever been created in the image and likeness of God. None. Angels are a separate class of creation altogether. And they're divided by different ranks. There's cherubims, there's seraphims, there's uh, uh, messenger angels, there's all kinds of different angelic, there's even war angels. <laughs> in the in the scripture it talks about, in the book of 1 Kings or 2 Kings, one of those two, it says that one angel stopped and destroyed the army of an entire nation, one angel of 185,000 soldiers. These are a, a totally separate class of beings, but they are not in the image and likeness of God, which is even a higher order and a higher creation. See, And that's the way God created man. That's the reason that over there in the book of Psalms, when it says that, Man was created a little lower than the angels. That's wrong because the Hebrew says he was created a little lower than God. Man wasn't created an angel. Man was created in a class with God. Lucifer thought, okay, I'm going to lift myself up. I'm going to raise my throne up above the throne of God. And I'm going to be like the Most High. And God said, no, you won't. You're going to be cast down to hell. That's what he said. You are not going to do that. I'm not allowing you to do that because no angel was ever created in the likeness, uh, in the likeness of God. He was taken, trying to take upon himself the privilege and the right that later God bestowed on this creation called man. He tried to do it before. When that happened, and there's plenty of scriptures, you can read the book of Revelations chapter 12, and you'll see that it says that the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, it calls him, and Satan, it says, he drug a third of the stars of heaven 
with him. And if you'll go to the book of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, you'll see that it's talking about the angels of heaven, and he took a third of them with him and rebelled completely against God. Tree represented the mixture that had come in on the scene in Genesis 1-2. God didn't want man to learn or become intimate with a mixture, with a chaos. God wanted man to know about good and about evil, but by revelation from God, not by disobedience. Wow. Now, and this is really important. God said, don't eat from that tree. But what happens? It says that the devil came and actually, and if you'll study in the book of uh, Revelation, you'll see that it calls him that ancient serpent, uh, because it's talking about this scenario here in Genesis chapter 3. And uh, many of you have read this many times, but you got to get religion out of the way. you got to get your theological ideas and throw them in the trash. Okay, when you're reading this, and, and you have to look at it from the Spirit. You have to allow the Holy Ghost to reveal this to you on the inside, where you begin to understand what's going on here. One of the things that happened here in Genesis chapter 3 is that the devil invaded the body of a snake. Now, that's why it calls him the ancient serpent. There were all kinds of animals. There were, you know, and just by knowing a little bit of how the devil works, and you say, how do you know that? I said, well, I know it from the Bible. It says, we're not ignorant of his devices. I know that he probably went to every animal on the planet till he found one that, that would allow him to get in. He probably went to the cow, and the cow said, uh-uh. <laughs> you go use somebody else, Jack. I'm not going to be your slave. And then he probably went to the dog, and the dog said, Nay, no way. <laughs> I am not going to do that. He went to the birds. The birds didn't obey him. Nobody obeyed him until this dumb snake obeyed him. And you say, dumb? I said, yeah, dumb. Anytime you obey the devil and follow him, you're really dumb. Because there's a better way. You don't have to go that way. Amen. Now, Notice what it says here in, in Genesis 3, 1, and, and you may think it's saying something different, but watch what it says. It says, now the serpent was more cunning. And you say, well, that sounds like he was smart. Yeah, but he was smart in the wrong way. See, there is a scripture in, in the New Testament in the book of Luke, chapter 16, where Jesus said that the children of this world are wiser than the children of light. What was he saying? That the world has more wisdom than his kids? No, the world's using a different wisdom, but they've learned how to use their system better many times than Christians have learned how to use what God says in his word. And it was really an indictment by Jesus. It was really a rebuke by Jesus. The serpent was cunning, but it wasn't in a good way. He was using the wrong kind of wisdom. And if you know anything about the scripture, you know that the Bible talks about that there's a right kind of wisdom and there's a wrong kind of wisdom. Uh, there's a devilish wisdom. James chapter 3. This serpent yielded to devilish wisdom. And you can read the story here. Verse 2. The woman. Well, actually, let's go back to verse verse 1. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, go back to chapter 2 and verse 17. Here's the command of God. Listen to it. Verse 16, 216. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Now just underline that in your Bible. That seems pretty straightforward to me. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do you realize that when God created Adam and Eve, they were to live eternally? There was no death. There was no physical death. There was no sickness or disease. There was no bondage. There was no, there were no accidents that could possibly happen to them. There was no devil. Satan's the one that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan is the killer and has been the murderer from the beginning, Jesus said. He wasn't there. Before this incident in, in Genesis chapter 3, the devil wasn't there. There was no killing, no stealing, no destroying, no death, no sickness, no pain, no sorrow, only blessing and abundance and glory and power. God had this idea of a wonderful family, and this is what he did with Adam and Eve. He put them in a garden. He wanted them to have fellowship with him. You study through here, God would come in the cool of the day, it says, and he would come and talk to his man. He'd walk with him, and they would hear the voice of the Lord in the garden, and he'd commune with them. This is what he wanted. He wanted a family. He was looking for sons and daughters, a family, the father loving his kids. Satan comes in there, and he comes as he usually does with doubt. Has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. You notice that? Because they could eat from the tree of life and all the other trees. But of the fruit, now watch this, verse 3, Genesis 3, 3. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Whoa, wait a minute. Where'd she get that? Where'd she get that phrase, you shall not touch it? God didn't say that. God said, you'll just not eat of it. What does that tell you? Oops, something's going on here. Right away you see deceptions beginning to set in. Anytime you don't answer the devil when he comes with the word of God and you do it precisely and exactly, there's a possibility that deception can set in. And this is exactly what happened here. She added something to the word. Instead of just obeying the word, she added something to it. She said, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And now here comes the, the direct opposition to God and his word. He starts with doubt. Then he comes with direct opposition to the word. And he says, the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, 3, 4, you shall not surely die. See, he first begins with the deception, the question. He inserts the question into the mind. Then if you act on that and you respond to that and th instead of responding according to what God said, then he'll bring the complete contradiction. Now I'm speaking by the Holy Ghost right now and I'm telling you, this is one of the things that many have yielded to. First comes the doubt. God says in his word, by his stripes you were healed. First comes the doubt. Has God said that you're really healed? Has God said that for sure? And you say, well, yeah, I think that God said that. And, and you know, it's, it's a possibility that God said that. And then he says, no, God didn't say that at all. He wants you to be sick. There comes the contradiction, the lie. 
follows the deception. The deception is also a lie, but it's more subtle. It's more subtle. And that's the way he works. I trust that you learned something with that because you, you know, the scripture says that we are to submit ourselves to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from us. James chapter four, verse seven. Well, I'm showing you one of his techniques and he doesn't change. He keeps doing the same thing over and over again. He, you know, he's, he's stubborn that way and he'll come and first it's a deception. First, it's the suggestion that of doubt. Then comes the contradiction. And then, once he contradicts, if you don't stand against that, then comes disobedience. And this is exactly what happened here. Watch this. Verse 5. Well, verse 4. You shall surely die. Verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Yeah, but he wasn't telling them the whole truth. Yeah, your eyes going to be opened, all right, but not to God. That's for sure. Your eyes are going to be open to something else that you wish you never had. And you will be like God. What do you mean you're going to be like that? Do you, like God? Do you see the lie here? They were already like God. They were already in the image and likeness of God. Satan got them to doubt their sonship. Satan got them to doubt their unity with God. Satan got them to doubt, got her to doubt. I want you, I want you to notice this. Got her deceived, comes, then came the contradiction, and now comes the outright lie. Nah, he just wants you to, he doesn't want you to participate because if you do, then you're going to be like God. That's a lie. They were already like God. So what does she do? Watch this. It says in verse 5, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Yes, they were going to have an intimacy with both, but it was according to the mixture that Satan brought in. He was telling them a partial truth. You know, that's just like when Jesus was tempted on the Mount of Temptation. Satan came and quoted a partial truth. He said, he took him up on top of the pinnacle of the temple and said, go ahead and throw yourself down because the word says that will not God send his angels and they'll carry you up in their hands and, and you'll be protected. Jesus taught a very important lesson. You always answer Satan with scripture. You don't answer him with your thinking. You don't answer him with your ideas. You don't, you answer him with the word. Jesus three times there, he said, it is written. And the third time he came down with, it is written. It says, and the devil left him and sought a better opportunity. But you know what? It never came. So what do you do? When the devil said, throw yourself down because the angels will come and bear you up. And Jesus said, hold on a minute. That may be so, but the word further says, you will not tempt the Lord your God. In other words, I don't have to jump off of here and commit suicide to prove that God will protect me. In other words, he answered scripture. Listen to this. He answered wrong interpretation of scripture with scripture. In other words, he used scripture to interpret scripture. And he gave the right interpretation. Instead of Satan's wrong interpretation. You know, there's such a thing as using scripture in a wrong way. 
And if you're not led by the Holy Ghost, if you're not led by the Spirit of God into all truth, it's very easy to get sidetracked and to hear things that are not in line with the Word of God and all kinds of ideas and philosophies and traditions of men. Okay, it takes the Spirit of God to lead us, it says, and guide us into all truth. Jesus said, Father, your word is truth. Yeah, but you're going to need the Holy Spirit to lead you into it. You're going to need the Holy Spirit to escort you into truth. And he's willing to do that. That's his job. He wants to do that. But you're going to have to yield to him. You're going to have to study the word. You're going to have to spend time in prayer. It's it's not going to come automatically. It's not going to just fall on you. You have to take the time to spend in the word. See, Jesus knew the word, and he knew it well. He knew it well enough that he could stand on that word when that temptation came. Now, that's important. Eve should have done that, but she didn't. What did Eve do? The devil came with his deception. Then he came with the outright lie. And then after that, it says, verse 6, are you there? Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes. Now, you got to see what 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 Satan did. He reduced the woman down to the natural physical senses. And instead of her staying in her place in God, that the Bible says God is a spirit and those that worship him would worship him in spirit and uh, and in truth, which is the word Jesus said. Instead of staying on the word that God had given her, you'll not eat of this tree. Right? What did she do? She got off the word and got over into deception. And now immediately her natural physical senses begin to take over instead of what God said. Now there's a, a, a difference between the truth of God and natural fact. Natural human fact is quite different than the truth of God. God's truth says, by his stripes you were healed by what Jesus did. That's, that's the, that's the truth. The fact may be that there's a sickness in your body. But if you believe the truth and walk on the truth, the truth will make you free from the fact. That's the power of it. See, any truth from God's word, Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word sanctify doesn't just mean live a holy life. That's a part of it. But the word sanctify means to be separated from. And what Jesus was saying is, Father, your truth will separate them from the world's system. It'll separate them from what Satan is doing in the world. It'll put a stop to it in their lives. Anytime you apply the truth, you believe the truth, you can, and Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth. See, it doesn't say you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. That's only a part, partial statement. It says, first, you have to continue in the word. Continue in the word, become my disciples indeed, and then you'll know the truth, and then it'll make you free. It'll it'll yes. totally obliterate those things that are standing in your way. Nothing can take, can stop the force or the power that's in God's word in his truth. Nothing can stop it. It cannot be stopped. 
Once it's placed into action and you stand on that word, you stand on the truth of God and it'll change natural fact. Every single time without exception. In order to get there, you're going to have to let the spirit of truth lead you and guide you into it. See, a revelation is going to have to come inside you of the word of the living God. That word, you're going to have to continue in it till it becomes real to you. On the inside, the Spirit of God opens it up to you. And then you can take a stand on it, and God will back it. Glory. Mm. Hallelujah. All right. The woman did the opposite. Instead of looking at the promise of God or looking at the command of God, she allowed her senses to get in the way. She allowed the natural to get a hold of her. And you know, we're all faced with the natural. We live in a natural body. We have physical senses, what we see, what we feel, what we smell, what we touch, what we can taste. These are our physical senses. We're in this natural world. But as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have to live according to the natural. We can live according to the spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that you get crazy. I'm not talking about getting nuts and getting crazy and saying, well, I don't live according to the natural. So I'm going to walk out in the middle of the road at four o'clock and five o'clock in the afternoon, right? It's smack in the middle of traffic. And I just expect God to pray. No, you're just dumb if you're doing that. Okay. Don't, that, that's not God. I'm not talking about getting nuts. I'm talking about that spiritual truth applied spiritually from the inside will change things out there. The word says, while we look not at the things which are seen, that's not what you're supposed to look at, but at the things which are not seen, because the things which are seen are temporal. They can change. But the things which are not seen are eternal. They go on forever. The things of God, the promises of God, that's eternal. The truth of God, that's eternal. It's forever. So you can take the unseen promises of God, though you see them written, but you can take the unseen word and the unseen promises of God, put them on the inside of you through the word of God, spend time in that word, confess them with your mouth, believe them in your heart, trust God, and that word will open up to you. And when it does, power's released in it. And where power's released, it'll get out there and change that negative circumstance. It'll change the natural. It'll change sickness into health. It'll change disease into wholeness. It'll change lack into supply. It'll change depression into the joy of God. It'll change the natural. I'm telling you, we have available to us weapons, the scripture says, of our warfare that many never use. Because they don't know about them. Well, that's what we're here for. We're here to teach you and to minister to you and to tell you there's more in God. If you think you have all of God that you could possibly get, just turn me off right now and go back to bed. Because I'm telling you, God is an eternal God. You'll, you'll, he'll never run out of his goodness. He'll never run out of his blessing. He'll never run out of his vastness. It's forever. Do you understand? It goes on forever. It'll never run out. Hallelujah. Mm, glory to God. Now, you know, the woman... She would not stay on the word. She started looking to the natural. Now, I'm going to give you a good example. Thank you, Lord. 
This is from the Holy Ghost. This is from the Holy Spirit. All right, he just dropped this example from the scripture into my spirit. Peter walking on the water. You know, Peter, <laughs> Jesus comes walking on the water, and Peter, with his big mouth, <laughs> said, Is that you, Jesus? If that's you, tell me to come out here, out there on that water. And Jesus said, Come. Now that was the word of God. The scripture says Peter got out of the boat and began walking on the water toward Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, you got to remember there was a storm out there. Clouds were out there, thunder and lightning. The waves were beating in on the ship. And Peter, it says very clearly, Matthew 14, Peter started looking at all of that. He started seeing the clouds and the boisterous waves and all of that. And it says, and Peter, seeing all of that, began to sink. It's by getting your eyes off the word of Jesus that people begin to sink in life. But if you'll take a stand on that word, it's because he did. He started walking on that water. But when he got his eyes off of Jesus and off his word, he started to sink. And of course he cried out, and I don't know if you've been there, but I've been there, where, where you're sinking pretty bad, and you say, Jesus, help! And Jesus came, stuck his hand out, and, and lifted him up, and didn't say, wow, Peter, you did so good. No, he said, Peter, why did you doubt? How did Peter doubt? He got his eye, eyes off of Jesus and off the word and on the circumstance. That's how Peter doubted. As long as Peter kept his eyes on Jesus and on the word come, Peter was walking on the water. A supernatural miracle was taking place. See, well, Jesus went, pulled him up, and it says, and they both walked back on the water to the boat. So Peter did. Now, now, don't criticize Peter. We've all been there. We've all doubted. We've all missed it. Don't criticize Peter. Do you walk on the water? <laughs> and, you know, walking on the water is not just getting out there, you know, in the lake or out here in the ocean, you know, and try to walk on water. No, walking on water is taking a stand on in faith on the word. That's walking on water. That's the miracle part. See, the miracle part is getting out of that natural thing over here into the spirit, trusting God and his word. You know, nothing's impossible with God, but, and it says, all things are also possible to him that believes. Peter missed it by looking at the natural and he began to sing. Well, I'm telling you, you don't have to sing. You can stay on the word. You can stay in the spirit. You can stay in the truth of God. You can see what the promises of God say to you. Yes, you. The promises of God are for you. They are for me. We have to take them, appropriate them, believe them, walk in them, trust God in them, and they'll come to pass. They'll begin to come to pass in your life. Amen. I've been trying to get off the sixth verse in, 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 in Genesis chapter three, verse six. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. <laughs> now underline this next sentence. She also gave to her husband with her. And he ate. 
Do you understand that Adam was standing there the whole time the devil was talking to his wife? The whole time. Not only that, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14 says that the woman was deceived, but the man was not. Adam knew exactly what was going on and what was happening and didn't do anything to stop it. Talk about a henpecked man. <laughs> Talk about a man that, that, you know, didn't understand his place. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. But, but I'm, I'm telling you, you know, talk about a, a mess. The woman was the seed, but Adam wasn't. That's the reason that the Bible talks about the sin of Adam. It doesn't talk about the sin of Eve because Eve was deceived. Adam wasn't. Adam's sin was treason. He knew exactly what he was doing and he still did it. Now, in the natural, you probably can't blame Adam too much because, you know, all, all the men will say, bless God, if I was there, I would have seen that <laughs> devil. I would have seen that woman with that fruit in her hand. I would have slapped that fruit out of her hand and broke and taken a shovel to the snake's head. Oh, it's always easy hindsight, you know, but, but the truth is that Adam didn't say a thing. Now, you have to understand, folks, this woman Eve was like no woman on earth at any time. She was completely perfect and flawless. And I, this is me joking, but I think that Adam just said, you know, she gave him the fruit and said, Adam, go ahead and try this. This is pretty good. And uh, he looked at her, and she was just so absolutely radiant and beautiful that he said, Anything you want, Mama, I'll do whatever you want. <laughs> I'll do whatever you want, darling. Anything you say. You know, this was a woman that would make the most beautiful woman on the planet today look homely, look less than average. She was perfect in every way. I'll never forget years ago, my sister, my sister had a, uh, from Bill Cosby. And I'll never forget years ago when he talked about, you know, in the book of Genesis. And he said, you know, that God created man. And then, you know, the Bible says that God took the rib out of the man and created the woman. And, and, uh, and the reason that God called her woman is because Adam looked at her and said, whoo, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, it, she was an amazing, gorgeous beyond description creature. See, now let me tell you something. When Jesus comes back and the great resurrection takes place, we're all getting glorified bodies. <laughs> that means that, that we're all going to have perfect bodies. No, no, uh, uh, flaws or defects or, you know, having one eyebrow a little bit different than the other or none of that. It's all going to go. And you're going to have a perfect body, it says, just like Jesus' body. Now, that's the great expectation of believers. There's a day coming where he's coming back. He is coming back. Jesus is coming. And when he comes, we're going to be raised up and transformed and transfigured and glorified, it says, into a body just like his. Have you thought about what kind of body he has? You know, you, you think about the body that Peter and James and John and all of these other men saw after he was raised from the dead. You think about that? You know, he, it was, it was extraordinary. It says the doors being shut. 
This was after his resurrection. The doors being shut, he came into the room. It says just like that. So he walked through the wall. But you know what? Then it says he sat down and ate with them fish. That may be the reason I like fresh fish so much. Jesus liked it so much. Good fresh fish. Glory to God. That's so good. Well, Jesus ate the fish and then disappeared. In other words, the body is so perfect that it uses every, every part of what it consumes as food. I won't say any more of that, but, but I'm just trying to get over to you how perfect this body is. Now, <clears throat> when John saw him on the Isle of Patmos, just some years later, Jesus had been now in heaven in the presence of God for maybe 50 years. When John had maybe 60 years, when John had that revelation, that he called the revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. And Jesus appeared to him, and it says that when he turned to look at him, he said, oh man, I got to read that. I got to read that. I got to read that because, you know, we don't understand what kind of God we serve sometimes. God is so powerful, so glorious, and so magnificent that when he came down on Mount Sinai, that mountain wanted to rip apart. I mean, fire and smoke and glory was manifested in that place that when Moses went up, it says he had so much glory on him that when he came down off that mountain, he was shining like a like a lighthouse. And he had to put a veil on his face because everybody was freaking out. Everybody was shocked at all this glory coming out of him. All right. And that was only 40 days. What do you think? Could have possibly happened to Jesus. 60 years in the presence of the Father God in all his glory. Well, let me give you a glimpse of it. Ooh, hallelujah. Oh, Jesus. Revelations chapter 1. Mm, 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 mm. Uh, yeah, I told you we'd be preaching probably the whole Bible. <laughs> and we have been from generation, uh, generation, from Genesis to Revelation. <laughs> That's a new book, Generation. Did you know that? I just thought I'd throw that in there. <laughs> Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse 17. Talking about, no, let's go back. Verse 12. Revelations 1.12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now, you folks that think that gold is bad and evil and all of that, I don't know what you're going to do with that. I don't know what you're going to do when you get to heaven. And all of a sudden, you're, you, you realize that the city that we're, 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 that where God is, his throne is so huge. It'll just, it's, it's mind boggling. It's, it's a city that's 1200 miles long, deep and high. You know what 1200 miles is high? There are such thing as satellites out there. And low Earth orbiting satellites orbit the Earth at around, what is it, 300, 300 miles? Something like that. This city is 1,200 miles straight up. And I think, if I remember correctly, low, low Earth orbiting satellites are from 300 miles to 1,200 miles. And then you get into the mid-range and then the high range. Okay? And, and the, the, uh, space shuttle is right around 250, 300 miles up when they go up out there, about 300 miles up. Okay. 
This city is four times that height. And, and if you, if you could, if you could put it down in the United States, it would be like from Texas all the way up to the border of Canada, all the way across to California, and then straight back down, all the way down to Baja and back across to Texas. It's a squared city. And it's 1200 miles. And it says it's made of such pure gold that it's like crystal. There's nothing like that on earth. You understand that? And it says that it has 12 gates. And the 12 gates, each one of them, is made out of one pearl. And, and now, you know, people talk about the pearly gates. That's not so. This is our God, one pearl, a gate 200 feet high. Yeah, imagine the oyster. <laughs> well, here's the thing. God didn't even need the oyster. He just created the thing. There's nothing like it in the universe. You can't even compare it. And, 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 and the cubic miles and the cubic feet inside the city are, 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 are amazing. The streets are not paved with gold. It says they are gold. Okay. And it's solid, pure crystal gold. So if you've got a problem with prosperity or if you've got a problem with Gold and silver, then I don't know where you're going to walk when you get up there. I guess, well, you know, what are you going to take? Jesus? No, Jesus, I don't want that. Let me have a little log cabin by the creek. Sorry, but there's no log cabins up there. They're all mansions. Amen. Now watch this. Watch what it says. And did you notice that it said that uh, having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, they were golden, by the way clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. You know, that's the only place in Scripture you find that that the Son of Man appears like that with a gold. My opinion, if you want it, if not, just forget it. Okay, but but the truth is, <clears throat> that was just something Jesus wore for that day. He looked in his wardrobe and said, you know, I think I'll wear that golden band <laughs> for today when he appeared to John. <clears throat> Amen. But watch this, verse 14. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Now, you know, when it says his head and hair were white like wool, it's not that he was getting old. Have you ever had a real bright light shining behind you? And uh, if you look at the person straight on with that bright light, everything turns white. Okay, well, he had so much of the glory and the power of God on him that fire was coming, light was coming out of him. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His his feet looked like like brass that had burned in a furnace. And this was just from him being in the presence of God a few years. Verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Watch this. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Like the sun shining in its strength. Have you ever tried, I don't recommend it, but have you ever tried to look at the sun straight on when it's noontime? You can't do it. It, it, it's, it's, It's too much. Well, he said Jesus by himself. No special effects. Just the glory of God. He was shining like the sun in its strength after only... Maybe 60 years after the resurrection? Do you imagine what he looks like now? (laughs) I expect, you know, he's, woo, lily of the valleys. (laughs) 
Ah, the morning star. I mean, what else could you say about him? I mean, there's no comparison. And you know what? That's just the beginning. What about all eternity? See, God never ends. It's forever. Amen. Let's go back to uh, Genesis chapter 3. And this is after, again, after the temptation, after uh, Adam and Eve partake of the fruit. Adam was standing there the whole time. He didn't do a thing in the world to stop it. And it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. What happened? You remember I told you that when God created them in his image and likeness, the book of Ezekiel says that God is a fire from the waist up and a fire from the waist down. And and there's so much glory and power around him. That's the way he created Adam and Eve. They had never seen their bodies. All of a sudden now, because of disobedience, death takes a hold of them. And when death took a hold of them, that light and that glory went out. And for the first time, they actually see their bodies. And they sewed fig leaves together, which wasn't much, and made themselves coverings. Yes, Lord, let, let me say this to you. Whenever you disobey God, and you refuse to do what He says in His Word, you know what what happens next? You try to provide for yourself. Instead of seeking first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness so that all these things can be added to you by God, what did they do when they disobeyed God? They started looking for a solution themselves. They sold some fig leaves. They made themselves coverings. Instead of trusting God for their supply, they quit trusting God for his supply. And now they were trusting themselves for supply. And that's what sin does. Sin causes you to get your eyes off of God and on yourself. It's very selfish. It Disobedience moves you from trusting God into trusting in yourself and what you can do, what you can provide. This is what happened at the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, <clears throat> you know, this was... In Genesis chapter 11, you'll find out that they decided they were going to build a city whose top would reach God and actually heaven, it says. And it says that they found for themselves a place. They made for themselves this and that. They did this for themselves and they did that for themselves. At no time is God mentioned. They left God completely out of the equation. And that is, if you'll permit me to use this term, the Babylonian system of the world. Of me, myself, and I. What I can do for myself and not trusting God to do it for you. Not believing his word and and it, it also becomes the world system of finance, the world system of government, the world system where, where everything is according to the pattern of me, myself, and I without God. <clears throat> this is what happened here in Genesis chapter 3. They left God out of the equation because of disobedience and sin. Anytime disobedience and sin comes, you're going to leave God out of the, the equation. For it to come, you left God out of the equation. Somehow you left God out of the equation. See, anytime you disobey, it's because somehow you didn't connect with God. Somehow. That's all it is. Let's go a little further in this. It says, and they heard, uh, they were naked, they sewed leaves uh, together, made themselves coverings, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, here again is another key. Whenever sin and disobedience comes, you're going to hide yourself from the presence of God instead of going to him. See, and that, and you gotta, you gotta learn to do exactly the opposite. You gotta learn to, man, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you miss it. You commit a sin. You stop right there and you run as hard and fast as to God as you can. And you go to him and you repent and you confess your sin and believe that the blood cleanses you from all sin and all unrighteousness. Hey, why? So you are not separated from the presence of God. So you don't follow after that because that's what sin and, 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 uh, transgression and, and disobedience. That's what the devil's after. He's, he's attempting to get you over into a place where you're shut out from the presence of God, where you're hiding yourself from God instead of understanding that now because of the blood of Jesus, I don't have to hide. If instead of hiding, I'm going to go submit. <laughs> to God. Instead of hiding, I'm going to go running to him. Instead of hiding, I'm going to say, Jesus, I messed up. I sin. Forgive me, Lord. Amen. They did the exact opposite. Are you learning something from this? Okay. Glory to God. Now, uh, God has a, a way of asking questions. Verse nine. Then the Lord, you don't think God knew the answer to these questions? Okay. The Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? You know, you can preach a whole sermon just on where are you? Because a lot of people don't know where they are. (laughs) They don't know where they are in God. They don't know where they are in life. They don't know where they are. And let me tell you something. You need to learn where you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know him as Lord, you need to know him. You need to find out where you are. Okay, you need to understand that without him, you're nowhere. <laughs> Hallelujah. Now watch, I, I, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how big or how low you've come in life. The truth is that you need to find out where you are. And I'm showing you by the word that we can all be in the presence of God. Through Jesus, it's just that simple. It's through him. Now, we're trying to get to the place where we begin to understand why Jesus had to come. Why did he have to come? I've, 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 I've talked all the way around it. All right, but I'm not done yet. Okay, and I'm going to keep talking around it until we get to the place that we talk about why he had to come. We're almost there. Okay, now here in... um Verse 9, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Man, that is so full of, of, of revelation. It tells you what disobedience and sin and all of that will do in the life of, pers- of a person. <clears throat> you hear the voice of God, you disobey, and, and, and you become afraid. Fear is always the result of not acting on the word. That's where it comes. Uh, it's the result of disobedience. And he said, because I was naked, I had the Lord say something to, to me. He said that fear comes because of nakedness. Did you hear that? Fear comes because of nakedness. Being on your own, not knowing who your source is, not understanding where your supply, spirit, soul, and body, and in every other realm comes from. Not understanding that, thinking that you're on your own, you're naked, you're by yourself, 
will always bring in fear, and fear will always bring in torment and death. But you can be free from it. Jesus bore the price for you. You don't have to stay there. You can be delivered from it. Verse 11, and he said, here's another question. Who told you you were naked? You see, God's trying to get down to him admitting his wrong. But I want you to see what he says. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman. Did you see that? God said, have you, what, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is blaming somebody else. The woman, Lord, that thou hast given me. The woman whom you gave me to be with me. She, in other words, it's your fault, God. You gave me this doggone woman and she deceived me and I ate because she gave me fruit. Now, I want you to understand that this is a lot of what goes on today. A lot of God blaming goes on today. People blame God. They blame the government. They blame their mammy and their pappy. They blame the aunt and uncle, their grandfather and sister, uh, so on and so forth, and cousin Sue and Aunt Minnie and all of them. Okay, they blame everybody but themselves. We have in our society today what I like to call kind of religion that blames everybody but themselves. What would you call that? Yeah, passing the buck. I guess you could say that. But, uh, it's, it's more like, like, it's not my fault religion. It's everybody's fault but mine. You know, it takes a real man and woman to size up and say, no, I missed it. I goofed. I lied. I sinned. I did wrong. But you know, that's exactly what people have done throughout the ages when they've repented. That's what the word repentance means. You come to him, you admit you're wrong, and you turn and change and go the other way and decide you're going to follow God. Adam here right away blames the woman. And lo and behold, verse 13, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me. So now she gets to blaming the devil. You know, Adam blames his wife. The wife blames the devil. And nobody's guilty. Right? Wrong. <laughs> the sin was still there, see? The guilt was still there. The, the disobedience was still there. The treason was still there. They never admitted it. They said, Adam said, the woman. The woman said, the devil. And the only reason, I guess, that the serpent didn't say anything is because the devil had already left. There was just a snake left. She said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, that's true. The serpent was the one that deceived her. But she was looking for somebody to blame. Are you looking for somebody to blame? A lot of people blame God. They blame God for their tragedies. They blame God for their sickness. They blame God for all the little starving babies. Some people use that as an excuse to say there is no God. Are you blaming God today? You don't have to. You shouldn't. It's not his fault. He made everything right. He sent Jesus to the cross and Jesus died and shed his blood to make it right. And all you got to do is come into what he did and it'll be right for you. And you can begin to walk it out. That doesn't mean you're not going to have problems in life. It just means you can do something about them. It means you can live above them. It means you can, you can stand against the devil. It means you can walk in victory. It means you can be more than a conqueror. It means that the greater one can dwell in you. And that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 
it means that this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. That's what that means. That's what Jesus provided for us. He provided cleansing from sin, healing for your body. He provided shalom for your life. He provided prosperity for your finances. He provided deliverance from an oppressed mind and body. He did it all for you. And all you got to do is receive it, take it, accept it in Jesus' name. Amen. One, two, and three. You're probably asking yourself, okay, what does all that have to do with Jesus? Why Jesus then? Why do I need Jesus in my life? Why do I need a personal relationship with God? Well, if you didn't get the answer through the things that we have already said, I'll get into it now. But, you know, it's the same question that a lot of, a lot of people ask themselves. I asked myself that question for a long time. All right, what's the big deal? All right, you got Jesus. You have religion, I thought. Actually, Jesus is not religion. Religion is something dead as a doorknob. You understand? The Jesus we serve, he's alive. He's been raised from the dead, and Christianity is not a religion. It's had a lot of religions made out of it, but it's not a religion. See, Christianity is life, God's life, put back in man. And that's what Adam and Eve lost. They lost their connection to God. See, when God created Adam and Eve in his image and likeness, they had a perfect connection to God. God was their father. They were sons and daughters of God. And there was no separation between them. They had eternal life. They had God's presence and power. They could walk in the presence of God with no problem. They could talk to him in the cool of the day. God was there for them and they were there for God. Perfect connection, perfect communion, perfect fellowship. But sin broke that, stopped that, killed that in the life of Adam and Eve. Now, you have to understand how God made Adam and Eve. And we've talked about this, but I'm just going to recap for you. I'm going to say it in a simple way. God created human beings because he wanted a family. Adam and Eve were the sons and daughters of God, as we have said, and we've repeated over and over again to you. He created them in his likeness and image. That's Genesis 1, 26 through 28. We also told you that God gave them authority and control over all the earth and all the works of his hands. The desire of God was that Adam and Eve partake of the very life of God and of the very nature of God and have an intimate fellowship with him. When they sinned, that stopped. That's why they were scared. They were afraid. They saw their bodies for their first time. They were naked. Uh, they ran from the presence of God instead of running to God. That's what sin and disobedience and transgression will always do. It'll cause you to fear, to run from God, to try to do things and get things on your own. So, God put them in the garden, and you know, God said, you can participate of the tree of life. Read it. Book of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. You, you can, you can have of the tree of life, but don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because the day you do it, you're gonna die. Now you understand, they were built and created to live forever. They were created to have fellowship with God forever. They were created to have the life and nature and glory of God in them and on them forever. 
Sin broke that connection. And now, because they disobeyed God, listen, listen closely, they disobeyed God by obeying a fallen angelic being. Now you remember, God created them with authority over the planet, over all the works of His hands. God created them with dominion. God created them in His image and likeness. And now when they sin by obeying an outlaw spirit, they submit themselves under a fallen angel. So what does that do? That breaks the connection. It breaks the fellowship. It breaks their walking with God in the cool of the day. It breaks the li- it stops the life of God from flowing in their spirit. Now, if you read from the Hebrew, Genesis 2, verse 17, when God said, the day that you eat of that tree, literally it says, in dying, you shall die. It's talking about two different kinds of death. God is saying, in dying physically, or in, di- excuse me, in dying spiritually, you're going to die physically. He's talking about two different kinds of death. Now, don't get hung up. You can't kill a spirit being. Spirit beings are forever. But spiritual death is being disconnected from God the Father. That's what it is. It's being disconnected from the life of God, from the Word of God, from the promises of God, from God Himself. It's 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 being out there on your own. That's spiritual death. And he said, because spiritual death is coming inside you, if you disobey, then because of that, physically, you'll die. And that's exactly what happened to them when they disobeyed God. The light went out. The connection was severed. And now, listen, God was no longer their father. Now they had a new spiritual father, which they had submitted themselves to. And that's why it says, Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. See, they obeyed and submitted themselves as servant to a new spiritual father. And the moment they did that, it cut the life of God off of their spirits. It stopped the flow of the supernatural in their lives. It stopped the flow of the life of God. The nature of God that had come on the inside of them went out. And now they were hooked to death. They were hooked to evil. They were hooked to connected to the curse. Now, if you'll go in here in Genesis chapter 3, you'll see that God says, Adam, because of what you did, you can see it there in verse verse 17. This is amazing to understand because when you understand this, I had a preacher one time, I heard a preacher that said this. He said, if you ever understand what happened in Genesis, what Jesus did, and what the book of Revelation says is at the end, you'll get your theology straightened out. And I agree with him. If you understand what happened here, you understand what Jesus came to do, and you understand that once Satan is eliminated from human contact, all death, disease, pain, and suffering will be gone forever then you understand what God is saying here to Adam. Because of your sin, Adam, look at this in verse 17. Then to Adam he said, this is Genesis 3, 17. 
because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. What's the next three words? For your sake. You look at it in some other translations and you'll notice that it says this. The ground is cursed, Adam, because of what you did. In other words, Adam, the curse has come into this planet because of your sin, because of your treason, because of your betrayal to God, the curse has come into the planet. Now, you know, people blame God for the curse, but it wasn't his fault. God put him in a garden, a beautiful place. No sickness, no disease, no pain, no suffering, no any of that. And because of sin, the door was open for death. And because of death, there was a curse that was introduced into the earth. And that curse affected everything. It affected the vegetation. It affected the animals. It affected their physical bodies. It affected their their uh, supply, their provision. It affected their family. To such a place that their first, one of their, their firstborn son kills the secondborn. Cain kills Abel. He becomes a murderer. It, it affected the entire world. And that's why the scripture says in Romans chapter five, it says that through death, I'm going to read it, Romans chapter five. Okay. Because you need to understand this. See, a lot of people don't understand that Jesus It says, Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Not that the law was a curse. That's not what that's saying. That's talking about the curse of disobedience to breaking God's law. Okay, anytime God's law or God's word is broken, there's a curse. That's what that's talking about. Well, Christ redeemed us from the curse. But it's talking about the consequence for sin. And if you read in the scripture, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, you're going to find out the first 14 verses talk about the blessing. You know, there's no confusion in the Bible. There's no confusion between the blessing and the curse. So many people are confused. What's a blessing and what's a curse? Well, let me just, let me just lay it out for you. If it comes to steal, kill, and destroy, it's a curse. If it comes to bless, and to strengthen, and to make you better in God, and in the things of God, and for the things of God, that's a blessing. If it comes to prosper you from God, that's a blessing. If it comes to heal your body, that's a blessing. But you know that people are so confused in the world today that they think sometimes that a sickness is a blessing in disguise. The Bible is not confused. Humans are confused. Religion is definitely confused, and tradition is off the hook confused. Okay, they are really confused. The Bible's not confused. It tells you exactly what God calls a blessing and exactly what God calls a curse. Deuteronomy 28, go read it for yourself, 66 or 68 verses. And you're going to find the first 14 verses is the blessing. From verse 14, 15 uh, through the end of the chapter... You're going to find the curse. Under the curse, every single sickness and disease that you could think of. And then it gets down to the end and says, and even every sickness or disease and plague that's not mentioned is included in the curse. 
It talks about poverty. It talks about theft. It talks about you marrying a woman and some other guy sleeping with her. It talks about all kinds of horrible things. It talks about national disasters. It talks about, and you'd have to put it in modern terms, but it talks about uh, uh, your donkey being taken away from you. It talks about, uh, uh, you know, uh, and of course, you know, unless you have a donkey, well, I don't make a whole lot of sense, but you put it in your your terms today. Uh, Somebody coming in by a lawsuit and stealing everything you got. All right. It talks about things that are contrary to the blessing. And there's no confusion in Scripture. It's always clear. The line is is drawn clearly. What's a blessing and what's a curse? Well, the curse started right then in Genesis 3. That's where it began. That's one reason Jesus had to come, to redeem us from that curse. Because God, it was never His intention that this planet be under a curse. It was never God's intention that this planet be under Satan's rule and domain. Now, do you understand that Adam and Eve were created in the image and likeness of God? They had, they had, they, they were actually created to rule on this planet under God. They were to be little gods. God with a little g. They were to rule and domain in, just like God in his likeness and image under his rule, right? Under God, they were to be little gods. I know that's kind of strong for you. A lot of people, you know, kind of get freaked out at that, but, but that's the way God made them. God made them just a shade lower, the book of Psalms says, than God, than Elohim, according to the Hebrew. Just a little bit. A shade lower means just, just, you know, here you have it. You, you got two colors. You got, you got black and you got dark, dark, dark gray. And dark, dark gray is just a shade below black. Well, I'm just using that as an example so you get the idea of what that's talking about. God created man just and woman just a, a little bit below himself, but much above the angels. And that's proven in Scripture. Much above, because angels were not created in the image and likeness of God. Now, they're subject to a fallen angel. So now they're not even in the likeness of God anymore. Now they're below that. They're under death. They're under this curse that has come in the earth, whose name is Satan, by the way. The curse in the earth is the devil. That's the curse, if you want to know. He's the one that steals. He's the one that kills. He's the one that destroys. Read it in the book of Job. People have preached so much junk about Job that it's 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 almost the... You can't even hardly imagine it. They've said so much stupid things about Job that it, that that it's 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 almost beyond comprehension. And they've never learned the truths that are revealed in the book of Job, even about Satan. It says that Satan went out from the presence of God, and he's the one that destroyed his farm. He's the one that killed all his kids. Satan was the one that that uh, put sickness and disease on Job. God didn't do it. And that's one of the things that you should learn from that book of Job, is understand who the thief and the killer and the destroyer is, and get that straight in your thinking. You know, because if you don't have that straight, you're always going to be struggling in your head. Well, maybe this is the will of God that I be sick. Maybe God put this on me to teach me something. 
That has to be one of the dumbest things that a human being could ever say, that God put a sickness and disease on them to teach them something. You know why? Because God is a father, and it calls him the father, our father. Well, in the book of Psalms, it says that as a father has compassion on his children, so does the father have compassion on his, on his own kids. Well, my question to you is, are you a father? Are you a father or a mother? Would you ever even think about if you could submit your children to HIV? Would you ever even think about breaking their arm? Would you ever think because they did something you didn't like about uh, putting some cancer on them? Of course not. I mean, that, that, that's just, we have laws against people that harm children. We have laws against child abuse. And let me tell you, God's no child abuser. Glory to God. He's not. He's a lover and he loves you and God wants you to be well. He wants you to be delivered. Glory to God. Amen. Amen. Well, now, now here you have the dilemma. Now here's men and women. God created everything to produce after its own kind. He created the animal kingdom that way. He created the fish that way. And he created human beings the same way. He created the trees that way. Everything produces after its own kind. You can't get, you cannot get fish out of trees as much as you may want to. Fish do not grow on trees. You cannot get a dog out of the union of a man and a woman. That's just not going to work. Men and women get together, married, I hope, I trust, and they have a what? A human child. You never heard about some some uh, uh, a couple being uh, together and, and uh, all of a sudden they have a, a, a frog. No, they don't have frogs. They have human children. Everything was to produce after its own kind. Regardless of what evolution says, it doesn't take rocket science to figure it out how flawed that idea is. You know, because fish produce fish. Mammals produce mammals. Uh, birds produce birds. You don't have birds producing cows. It just doesn't work that way. Okay? Now, I said all of that for you to understand that the way God created Adam and Eve, when he put them in charge, was so that the life and nature and blessing and glory and power of God would be transmitted from generation to generation. God's desire was every child that was born into this planet would have God's presence, God's power, and God's glory from day one would have a perfect fellowship and communion with God from the moment they would come out of the woman's womb. That's what God had in mind. But what happened? Disobedience produced death. Now, I was going to read to you, if I, if you remember, Romans chapter 5. Did I ever get there? I don't think I did. Romans chapter 5. And uh, I, I need to read this to you because it tells you what happened after we read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we studied that. And we saw how they sinned and disobedience and, and uh, they were disconnected from God. And God said, if you eat of that tree in dying, you will die. You're going to die spiritually and you later on you're going to die physically. Well, it took 930 years for Adam to die. He didn't know how to die. Of course, nowadays the devil's taught people how to die in under 70 in a lot of cases. 
But he, it took a long time for the devil to convince Adam that he had to die. Do you understand 930 years? <laughs> you know how long that is? Let's see. How long have we, has the United States been a country now? What, 400 and some years? Okay. <laughs> and, and he lived almost a millennium. <laughs> 930 years. That's a long time. Do you think he could have had a lot of sons and daughters in 930 years? <laughs> you know, that, that'll answer a question. Usually somebody comes around and says, well, Caleb went out and he married this girl. Where did she come from? Well, if you'd lived 900 years, how many kids do you think you'd have? They didn't have contraceptives. I mean, I'm just being plain about it. You know, you could have had half a million people already on the planet. I just thought I'd throw that out there for those people who say, well, you know, if Adam and Eve were the first couple and their children, uh, Cain and Abel were the first uh, children, uh, then and, and it says after Cain killed Abel, then Cain went and married a woman out of some other place. Where'd she come from? Oh, I just told you where she came from. Amen. Now you got your answer. Praise God. But now notice what happened here. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, Romans 5, 12. Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned. And if you go on here, it says, it says that death, in verse 14, reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him that was to come. Well, him who was to come was Jesus. Adam was the type. Jesus was the, uh, or I should say, Adam was the first one and Jesus was the type. In other words, Adam was the first man. Jesus was the second man. I mean, it says it just like that. First Corinthians 15 calls Jesus the second Adam. Now hold that in your thinking. Actually, first Corinthians 1545 says that he's the second Adam. And I believe 1522 and 1547, uh, that's pretty close. You'll find it in there. It calls him also the second man. It calls Adam the first man and Jesus the second man. Adam was the first Adam. Jesus was the second Adam. And that's going to be important to you in just a little while. Okay, because Jesus came to rectify all that the first Adam messed up through the sin of Adam, the treason. The betrayal of Adam against God. Satan had an opening in this planet. The curse was released. He came to rule over men and women. And that's why the scripture calls him even the God of this world. That's why Jesus said, the prince of this world comes, but he has nothing in me. Jesus recognized who he was, that the temptation on the mount, the devil went up and showed him in a moment of time, all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, this is mine. I can give it to whomever I want. Jesus never argued with him, never fussed with him, never said, you're a liar, devil. No, it was the truth. But then he said, if you'll bow down and worship me, then, you know, I'll give you this. And that's when Jesus said, no, 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 no. You worship the Lord, your God, and whom only you're going to serve. You know, I'm not going to worship you. In other words, I'm not going to worship you to get that. I'm I'm doing something else. I'm still going to get that, but it's not like you think. The second Adam came to straighten out the mess of the first Adam. 
He came to put man back in a relation with God, back into a place where man could stand before God as though he had never sinned. Death passed upon all men because of Adam's sin, but because of what Jesus did, now righteousness and wholeness and peace, as in shalom, was made available for every single human being. The first Adam, disconnected from God. The second Adam, rehooked the connection. Yes. Rehooked the connection. Praise God. If every single human being born upon the planet, after Adam and Eve sinned, death spread, it says, to the entire human race. It affected every Why? Everything was producing after its kind. Adam and Eve dis- disconnected from God. They hooked up to the devil. And now that perversion, that nature of death that was in Adam and Eve was transmitted to all their future generations. So now how are you going to get Jesus in here? It says the, the, the soul that sins, it shall die. The scripture says, it says, it says the wages of sin is death. Right? And it said, death spread to all men for that all have sinned. If the price is going to be paid for what the first Adam did, and it's going to be the price of death, how is somebody that has death going to pay for death? Now that's the dilemma of the world. The world could not deliver itself from death. The world had no way to deliver itself from spiritual separation from God. Because they were all separated from God. How could one that's separated from God pay the price for one that's separated from God? That, that just doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Now, if you understand that and understand that death passed upon all men, you begin to get an insight into why Jesus had to come born of a virgin. He had to come independent of natural generation. His DNA had to be this different. Both spiritually and physically, he had to be totally, completely different. Now, let me tell you something. Virgin birth was not an, an, an option. It was a necessity. Because every human being born by natural generation carried the death gene. One had to come that was pure, sinless, spotless, like the first Adam was before he sinned. That's why the scripture calls him the second Adam. Okay? That's why he had to come through a virgin. That was the only way to get into the planet. It was an amazing plan of God. The scripture called it a mystery hidden in God from the foundations of the world. It was a mystery, this that God did. It was on a need-to-know basis, and the devil did not need to know. Jesus born of a virgin, and you know, that was a feat in itself. There's not a whole lot of men that would have put up with that. Yeah, right. Mary, yeah, we're engaged to get married, and uh, you're pregnant before we get married, and it wasn't me. Uh, no, I don't think so. That doesn't go over very well. And if you read the scripture, that's exactly what Joseph thought. This, something's goofy here. Something's not right here. And it took an angel of God to come to Joseph. I mean, any man would have felt the same way. You're telling me, girl, that it was the Holy Ghost? Yeah, right. (laughs) No. (laughs) You know, something else is going on here. It took an angel of God to come to Joseph because Joseph, at least, 
he didn't want to make a public example of her. He was going to put her away privately. You know, he was going to break off the engagement and break off the marriage because of what happened. But an angel of God appeared and said, no, what's born in you is from God. What's born in her is from God. And it's a holy thing. And it's the son of the highest. And he will deliver his people from their sins. Because the only way for a pure, spotless human being to be born into this planet once again, just like at that be- at the beginning, was through a virgin birth, where men and women did not produce a child under death. Now something new had to come. Something new had to happen. And this is where the Spirit of God overshadowed her, and that which was born in her was a holy thing. Well, Jesus was born, he lived, and uh, he was at the Jordan River. By the time he was 30, he was filled with the Holy Ghost, and he began his earthly ministry, and he busted the devil left and right. And, you know, he, he became a problem to the religious establishment. Everywhere he went, he destroyed the devil's works, he busted sickness and disease, he provided for the poor, he ministered to the needy, he did all these wonderful works and it was just driving the devil crazy. And the religious establishment didn't know what to do with him. So they finally con- convened and decided that it's better we get rid of this man. That we put him to death. And the Jewish people decided, you know, the, the leaders of the Jewish people decided to do that. Then the Romans kicked in. And of course the Romans were no less guilty. Because the Romans, anybody that would rise up and they would call Messiah, they were going to crush him like a bug. Because all of the messianic pretenders that had come before Jesus, they had squashed them. They had destroyed them. Because the messianic idea was, when Messiah comes, the kingdoms of the earth are going to be his. And the Romans didn't want the Jews thinking like that. So they would destroy them and said, this is your king, this is your Messiah, we just killed him. So, the Romans had a hand in it. Jews, in other words, Jews and Gentiles were both guilty. They put to death the spotless one, the one that never sinned. Now, this is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 said. He who knew no sin was made to be sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus bore at the cross not just sin, but death itself. The nature of sin, the curse, the entire tragedy of the human family. At the cross, Jesus received it. It's Isaiah 53. He received it unto himself. Not because it was his own, but because he was taking it upon himself and paying a price. The godly, which was Jesus, was paying the price for the ungodly. The righteous one became the sacrifice for the unrighteous. Why was the sacrifice even necessary? Because there was a penalty for breaking God's law. It was death. So the only way to, to was for somebody to die, but, it, but the dead couldn't pay the price for the dead. It was going to take a living one. It was going to take one connected to God. It was going to take one that that had perfect fellowship with his father. So when he went to the cross, he took upon himself 
not just the sin of the world, but the sickness and disease. And as a matter of fact, Isaiah 52, verse 14 says that he was so marred on the cross that he, one translation says he didn't even look like a man. His, his entire features were disfigured. His body in the book of, of Psalms 22, it says that his bones were out of joint. And it says that he didn't even look like a human being anymore. That's how disfigured he was in the natural on the cross. What he bore on the inside came out on the outside and it was visible in a, in a, in a certain way. Because Jesus, it said, it didn't say he just carried sin like you carry a heavy burden. No, 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 no. It says he was made to be sin with our sin, not his. He never sinned. But Jesus took our death, our destruction as the second Adam so that he can once again provide a way back to God. Now, so many people have so much problems with this because they just simply don't study the Bible. They don't understand that Jesus, when he died, it was not just a physical death on the cross. Jesus was literally separated from his father at the cross. You remember when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was actually a quote from Psalms 22. And you can read it and you'll see that that separation from God came into him. God left him, abandoned his own son. Why would God do something like that? Because God was being mean? No, there was a sacrifice taking place. There was a substitution taking place. God put on him the iniquity of the world and the curse of the world on his son so that he could make us free, so that he could take us back to to the garden, so he could take us back into Eden, so he could take us back into the blessing. He was separated from God at the cross. And this was one of the things that that so many, but you know what that means? That means that, that spiritual death flooded his spirit. He was, God turned his back on him. He forsook him. Why? Because he was bearing our sin. Ours, that which separated us from God, Jesus bore it. All of it. And because of it, God turned his back on him. And, and I have so many scriptures to prove that. You need to go on our website, download the book, Three Days and Nights in the Heart of the Earth. You need to read it. Okay? It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. <clears throat> and, and, and just download. It's a free download. And read what happened from the time that Jesus died and his spirit, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. What happened from the time he died until the time he rose again? You remember? His body was put in the grave. But his spirit, what happened to his spirit? Where did he go? You know, this is, this is one of the things that people fight with and they fuss with because they, they can't read. Peter preached this. And I have a, a truckload of scriptures about what I'm telling you right now. But I'm going to read to you one scripture and, and you can find it. Okay. It's very easy. It's on the day of Pentecost when Peter got up after being baptized in the Holy Ghost and the fire of God fell. The first thing he preached was about what happened to Jesus when he died and the suffering he went through. You know, people don't understand what, what, oh God, what a magnificent thing Jesus did for us. People don't understand. They, 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 
make heroes out of Superman, make heroes out of all kinds of people in, in, in music industry and other industries. They make heroes out of them. They're, they're favorite movie stars, heroes. Let me tell you, there's no hero like our God. There's no hero like the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did. He was a hero from the word go. He took it all upon himself, but the great news is he defeated it all. (laughs) And then he turned around and gave us the victory. Hallelujah. Amen. But now, let's go to Acts chapter 2. Read in your Bible. I know tradition is cringing right now. And you're going to cringe even more when I read this. Acts chapter 2. Look at this. Verse 24. Well, let's go to verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Now, this is Peter preaching. Day of Pentecost, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So up to here, we have the crucifixion and putting to death. Right? Right. Right? Okay, now look at verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed... What does your translation say? Having loosed what? Pains of death. Look it up in the Greek and you'll see that it says the birth pains of death. What's he talking about? Well, stop and think about it for a moment. Yeah, Jesus suffered physically horribly in the crucifixion because it wasn't just the crucifixion. Do you understand that? Other people were crucified. By the thousands, they were crucified. No, it's what he bore for us. The sickness and disease of the world, all in all in one, rolled up into one at one time. You, you don't even have a concept of that in your mind. No movie has ever done any justice to what happened there that day. I know people talk about this movie, and they talk about that movie, and oh, uh, how powerful it was. Listen, what happened to Jesus that day? If it was put in a movie, it'd have to be R-rated, probably worse, because what happened to him that day was so horrible beyond human description, but it was done for you and it was done for me. But there's more. Oh, there's so much more. Acts 2.24 then goes on to say, Whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death. Wait, I just thought it said that he was crucified and he died. So what kind of pains of death is it talking about? What kind of birth pangs of death is it talking about? Stop and think about it. Honestly, there is no pain in death. Have you ever thought about it? Once a person dies, they don't feel anything. Uh, somebody's dead. They're up there on the, on the gurney and they're dead as a doorknob. You can go to them and punch them in the face and they don't say anything. They didn't feel a thing. Why? They're dead. <laughs> They're dead. They don't feel a thing. You go to the morgue. Somebody's in the morgue. And you take a, a, a knife and cut off their arm. They don't squeal. They don't scream. They don't feel any pain. Why? There is actually no pain after you die. Not in the natural. The pain that Jesus suffered here was spiritual. He suffered on the cross physically. Big time. Horrible. Beyond description. But it didn't end there. His suffering continued on in the spirit because he bore our sin. He was made to be sin with our iniquity. He was, he, he bore the full brunt of the curse of Satan that came on this earth. Now see, if you understand this, oh my God, if you get this, 
and you understand it for real, there's not a sickness or disease that can stay in your body. There's not a sin or bondage that could exist in your life over a long period of time. Are you kidding me? The whole plan of redemption didn't take but three days and nights. Why should anything of the enemy spend any time in our lives? At all. Glory to God. Huh? Let's read on. It was not possible that he should be held by it, by those pains of death. And David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. His flesh was in the tomb. His body was in the tomb. For you will not leave my soul in hell. Now my translation, the New King James Bible says Hades. And if you'll go to the book of Luke chapter 16, write it down. The story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus died and he went to Abraham's bosom, which was a type of paradise or heaven. But then it says that that wicked rich man, because you know there are some righteous rich people, but I just wanted to throw that in there. This was a wicked rich man, went to hell. The same word in Greek, Hades. And being in torments, he said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to come and dip his finger in water that he may cool my tongue, for I am tormented in these flames. That's where Jesus went for you and me. He went to hell in our place. Do you know that hell was never created for human beings? Hell, the Bible says in the book of Matthew, it says was created for Satan and his angels. God created Hades as a place of containment for the devil and demons and all his fallen angels. He didn't create it for mankind. But why do people go there? You know, there is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. Why do people go to hell? Human spirits cannot be killed. But if humans have made a choice to serve the devil and they're connected to Satan, and you say, well, I never made that choice. I never chose to serve the devil. Well, by default, you did if you didn't make Jesus the Lord of your life. You're going to serve one or the other. Jesus said you're either going to serve God or you're going to serve the devil. One of the two. You can't serve, uh, you can't have two masters. You're going to serve one or the other. There is no middle ground here. You can't say, oh, well, I don't want the devil. I don't want God. I'm just going to be right here in the middle. No, 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 no. That doesn't exist. It's either God or the devil. You make up your mind. Okay? And if you don't serve God, by default, you serve the devil. Okay? That's just the way it is. I'm sorry. If you don't like that, take it up with the Bible. I'm just telling you what it says. Okay? Now, you have to understand, human beings, a human spirit is... Unkillable. I don't even know if that's a word, but that's okay. You get what I'm saying. You can't kill a human spirit. Spiritual death does not mean the death of the spirit. Spiritual death means the separation of that spirit from God with no life, hooked up to death and hooked up to God's enemy, Satan. So what happens when a person leaves this body and doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't know that he paid an awesome price to take you to heaven. What happens to that person? 
Well, the scripture says they lose their soul. They lose their, because the soul is where the choice is. That's where the will, the mind, the emotion, they lose their ability to choose God at that time. And whatever they will to do is no longer available to them. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. If a person doesn't know Jesus as Lord, a person doesn't doesn't believe in their heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and confess with their mouth that he is Lord, then what happens to them when they leave the body? God has no choice. They have to be incarcerated in hell. Do you know what a human spirit without the restraint of the body could do? Human, uh, uh, the, the spirit, the human spirit, was created in the image and likeness of God, and then it got perverted. And now you have, without a body, a human spirit with no restraints of the natural. God can't have that. He won't have that. And that's the reason that human beings get incarcerated, because they are connected to their father, the devil. That's the only reason. God hasn't sent anybody to hell. You better get that straight. God doesn't send people to hell. Okay? People send themselves to hell. And that's important that you, that you understand that. The choice between life and death, blessing and cursing is in our hands. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 19. It is your choice that matters. Hallelujah. Why did Jesus go to hell? Because people without God, that's where they go. And you say, yeah, but Jesus was not without God. Yeah, but Jesus bore the sins of the entire world without God. And he was made sin with our sin. And he died spiritually in separation from God because of our sin. So what happens to a person like that? They go to hell. And Jesus suffered there, it says, for three days and three nights. As Jonas was in the belly of the way of the fish, great fish, wasn't a whale, by the way, it was just a big fish. For three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the center of the earth for three days and three nights. You go study it out. Like I said, I have ample proof, more than enough scriptures to back this up. It's so clear. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that people fight this. Don't you understand that if Jesus did not go to hell, you would have to go? Don't you understand that because he paid the price in hell, you never have to go? That if you go to hell, it's because you chose to go, either by default or because you chose to serve the devil. But you don't have to go. Thank God he paid the price. His blood was shed. Now, now you got to get this. His blood represents to, represents for us everything that Jesus did for us. It represents to us everything that Jesus did for us. His entire sacrifice is represented by the shed blood of the Lamb. I wish I had time to get into that now. I'll get into that some other time. But, but you need to understand that's where, that's why his blood is so precious. It reminds God of everything Jesus supplied. Everything Jesus provided. Everything Jesus did. Everything Jesus paid. To God, when he sees that blood, it reminds God of all of it. Oh, my God. Don't you understand that's the reason that the communion table is so powerful? Oh, my God. If you ever understood, if you ever understood the communion table, that we partake of his blood and of his body. Paul said, 
The reason people are sick and dying young is because they have not partaken of the communion table in a manner that's understanding the honor and the esteem of what Jesus did. Oh, Lord. Honor and esteem for what Jesus did. You gotta esteem it. Now, now this is what, now, now, again, this is what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And, and it's clear. And he's quoting the scripture. He's actually quoting Psalm 16, verse 10, 9, 10, 11, 12. That's what he's quoting. All right. And then he goes on here in, uh, chapter two. Look at this. And he says, um, about David, he said, being a prophet, verse 30, verse 30, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him out of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Jesus or raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning, now watch this, the resurrection of the Christ. Now what, what, what did he speak about? The resurrection of the Christ, right? Now watch what is included in the resurrection. Some people think it was only the physical body coming out of the tomb. That was a definite part of it because since Jesus got a glorified body, I get to have one. <laughs> you get to have one. See, whatever Jesus did, he did for us. He died for us. He rose again for us. That's what it's all about. See, that's why we need him. Because without him, you can't get this. You can only get this if you get him. You can only get connected to God if you connect to him through Jesus. Now watch. It says, the resurrection of Christ. Now, what is the resurrection of Christ? That his soul was not left in Hades. Notice it says the word soul. You know how people talk about losing your soul when you go to hell? That's what happened to Jesus. He was in hell. He suffered our the, our punishment. We were supposed to go to hell. We were supposed to go there. But Jesus suffered in our place. Hallelujah. And, and so you see, the resurrection of Jesus was twofold. Number one, his soul was not left in Hades. Number two, his flesh did not see corruption. Because this is what happened. And again, I have plenty of material online. <clears throat> Read my book, Three Days and Nights in the Heart of the Earth. It's a free download. And, and go study this out and see if the Word doesn't teach this. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8 says, The princes of this world, talking about the devil and his demons, would have known what God had, this is my translation, what God had up his sleeve. <laughs> they would never have crucified Jesus. They would never have done it. Why? Stop and think about it. The sin Jesus bore was not his own. The death he bore was not his own. And when he died at the cross and he left his body, the devil took the bait. He thought he had finally won and defeated the Son of God. And for some reason, God left him on his own. He is, this is free, uh, what do you call? This is, uh, uh, free territory. This is, uh, this is, uh, you know, a hunting season is open. Oh, yeah, we got the Son of God. We killed him. We destroyed him. We took him into hell. And God said, Oh, no, you don't. God said, oh, no, you don't. You can't have him there. You can't keep him there because he was innocent. He wasn't taking his sin. He didn't go to hell because he sinned. He went to hell because they sinned. 
So now God was obligated to raise him from the dead. Every time you see that phrase in scripture, raise from the dead, that's what it's talking about. His soul was not left in Hades, neither did his flesh see corruption. And God quickened the spirit of Jesus, it says. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. He was put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit, or made alive in the spirit. He was hooked back up to God. Hallelujah. You know where? Right in the pit of hell. My God, I hope somebody takes this and make, makes a movie out of it. It'll make Superman and Spider-Man and all these other guys in tights look really stupid. Okay? When you realize what Jesus has done, he's the real superhero. Hallelujah. And he did it for you because he loved you so much that he did it when you and I were still sinners. And you know, somebody asked me one time, well, brother, what's your background? Where do you come from? I said, I was a sinner from the word go. That's where I came from. All right, that's my background. But no more. Now, because of what Jesus has done, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. Not because of what I did, because of what he did. Now I have the victory. Now I have the presence of God. Now I can go to my father, like it says in the book of uh, Hebrews, uh, to the throne of grace, glory to God, hallelujah, I have an entrance, access into his throne, access into his presence, boldness to come before him because he's my father, my very own father, and I'm his son, and you're his daughter, sister, glory to God, and this is what he did for us. Now, what does he say? Look, he did the hard part. He did the difficult part. He did all of it for us. And now he says, here I am. Take it on. It's free. Glory to God. You can have it. You can take it. You can believe it. You can walk in it today. Listen what the scripture says. If you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and you confess him as Lord with your mouth, you'd be saved. You know what that word saved means? It means you'd be hooked up with God again in everything, in the blessing, in the health, in all of the protection, in all that's offered in the covenant of God. And I'll get into that the next time. Be blessed. God loves you and we love you. Now, if you don't know Jesus as Lord of your life, I'm giving you the opportunity to know him today. This is the great, wonderful thing that he's done for us. You don't have to live like you've been living anymore. There is hope, you know. But not only is there hope, I'm giving you by the word of God. I've The Bible says if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, you've received faith today to believe this. This is what Jesus did for you to make you free, to make you a son and daughter of God. It says those that believe on him, he said he gives them the power to become sons and daughters of God. Well, I'm, here's the instructions in the word. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. It says, if you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that he is your Lord. Not Now, this is not a game. This is the, to, to have him as Lord means you're committed. It means you're making a decision to commit your life to him. If that's what you want, if you want to be hooked up with God, if you want to be hooked up with blessing, hooked up with life, hooked up with the nature of God, pray this prayer with me. Father God, come before you 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died for me. He took my sins. He took my unrighteousness. He took my guilt that I would be made free. Now your word says that if I believe in my heart that you have raised Jesus from the dead for my salvation, and if I would confess with my mouth that He is my Lord, that I would be saved. At this moment, I believe you raised Jesus from the dead for me. I believe, I receive, and I decide that Jesus is the Lord of my life today. From now and forever, throughout eternity, I'll serve Him. I'll do His bidding. I'll do His will. In Jesus' name, I renounce the past. I renounce the devil. I follow Jesus. You are my Lord now. You are my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.